Hello everyone and welcome from here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is Capital Geek, a podcast dedicated to the founders and operators that create the products we love and turn them into fabulous companies with meaningful exits. Whether you're raising your first round of capital or racing toward an IPO, this is where we deep dive on the lessons learned from seasoned industry veterans, geeks of all types, the experts leading product and engineering teams, operations and finance, or sales and marketing, and we'll both learn from their mistakes and celebrate their successes while providing a roadmap for you to accelerate your own journey toward success. My name is Josh Stevens, CTO at Elsewhere Partners, and I am the Capital Geek. In this episode, we'll be talking with my friend and customer success geek, Andrew Call, Chief Customer Officer at SailPoint, a leader in next generation identity and access management products. We'll speak to Andrew about the evolution of customer service and tech support teams and the emergence of customer success organizations within high performing software companies. This provides a driving force to world-class net dollar retention and sky high company valuations. You won't want to miss this one. And without further ado, here's this week's episode of Capital Geek. Andrew, hello. Hey, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing great. There's a lot of interesting uh, things going on here in Austin, Texas today. Yeah, definitely. From the weather to the growth of the city, it's uh, absolutely mind-boggling what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the advent of the customer success team and how customer success teams have evolved within enterprise software companies around the world. Andrew, maybe you could walk us through a little bit about your background uh, as it relates to this. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. Um, so I've been in, uh, in the industry, in the software industry, for about 26 years now, going on 27, actually. And uh, in that time, I've always been on the customer-facing side. And so just has naturally fallen into the realm of, well, how do we take care of our customers? What do we need to do? And then started out with customer support and then evolved to services. And now here we are with the advent of customer success. So my whole career has been in that vein, and most recently I've been uh, fortunate to serve in a capacity as chief customer officer where I've been responsible for the entire spectrum of all the things post-sales. Um, but I love this area and uh, have been with it since the beginning and hopefully can continue to help it grow and evolve over time. You know, thinking back in my career, it's only been about the last 10 years I've started to see customer success teams specifically identified mm-hmm. within software companies and techno- other types of technology companies as well. What do you think changed to cause that evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I would agree with that time frame. About the last 10 years, you know, maybe even as, as early as late 2008, right after the financial crisis, because you know, the markets went haywire and a lot of companies, unfortunately, went under. I think what happened is, is two things. Number one, I'll say the financial crisis. I think that changed the way a lot of companies do business. And so there was this really intense focus on how do we take care of our customers? How do we make sure that they stay with us? What are all the things that we're doing? And it's not just the product quality that they had to be concerned with. It's the overall experience. How do we make ourselves more valuable so that we can weather a storm? Uh, So I think that's one event. And then the second one, I would say, really comes down to increased competition in the market. Shortly after the financial crisis, you started, you know, maybe two, three years later, you started to see more growth and more disruptive technologies come into play. And so you have these organizations say, wow, we've got these disruptors coming in who are taking away our customers, who are doing something unique and providing a lot of value. 
and maybe the product's good, maybe it's not, but there's something that they're doing that's taking away customers. And so organizations, especially the large enterprise stalwarts, started to sit back and take notice and say, hey, we've really got to focus on our overall customer experience. It's not just customer sat levels. It's what are we doing to make sure that our customers are successful? So between those two events, which really are intertwined, I think that's when we started to see the genesis of these dedicated customer success teams. You know, it's almost like uh, the investor confidence levels changed. And so before, we would bet on growth. You know, do I mm-hmm. think this company has what it takes to grow, and you invest accordingly? I think prior to that, that was sort of the logic. But now it's like companies look at the business and say, well, can I bank on the fact this company can continue to do what it's already doing? Right. You know, what's net churn? Are they retaining customers? Are their customers happy? And then do I invest to place a bet on growth sort of separately? Mm-hmm. And I think that really happened, like you said, as a result of that financial misstep back then. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. I think what's what's has happened ever since the the genesis of of this uh, customer success revolution, if you want to call it that, I think it's how do we continue to grow? It's how do we retain the customers? How do we grow those existing customers? And then how do we get net new logos or net new customers into our our bandwagon. And that growth element is so important because if you, it's one thing to retain a customer, it's another thing to retain them for the right reasons and then be able to grow them and look at the overall lifetime value. If you take it as a transactional approach, you're just another company. You're looking for that next customer. But if you take it from a growth standpoint, I've got this customer. How do I grow with them and let them grow with us? Then how do we go get a new customer and let them grow together? It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, I hate to use this term, but it, it is a bit of a, a stair-step evolution. You've got to take a step, move forward, climb to the next step, and make sure that you're sturdy and you have a solid foundation with that step that you've taken. Well, I think that land and expand strategy that you sort of just you know alluded to evolved in part because of the move from traditional enterprise sales motions toward this newer sort of inside sales base, you know, high transaction volume model. Because in that model, your goal is to, to land a deal as soon as you can with those customers and start providing value, you know, prove that you found product market fit. And then once you've done that, provide great customer experience, sure. you know, a great product, you know, great tech support, uh, lead your class there. And once that's done, it's much, much easier to sell those customers additional technologies once you've established some trust. Right, exactly. A good example that I like to use is um, if you think about – let me back up, actually. If you think about the model that you just walked us through, you're selling a product, and you want to get that customer comfortable with the product. But it's all the tangential things that go with it that makes the product valuable and makes the product valuable today, tomorrow, as well as in the future. A good example I like to use, and just for the sake of not endorsing any one brand here, I'll talk about a, a car company that I'm, I'm fond of. It's a German car company, so you've got the quality element to it. But the car itself is a great quality product, and I like the car. It's comfortable. It suits me well. It suits my family needs well. But it's all the tangential things that go around the car that the company provides or provides the ability for me to buy that have made me a loyal fan. And it's the same with enterprise software, at least I believe it is. And some of the tangential elements that I talk about, when I take the car in for service, the service area is clean. The service technician is dedicated to me. They know my name. They know when the service has got to be done. They know how I drive the car. 
They can recommend things to me that I may not have thought about. Maybe I need to get the car detailed. Maybe I'm taking a long road trip and I need to consider tires. So they know me really well. So a good service tech is almost like a customer success manager. But then the car company itself, knowing how I drive the car, has, the, has offered me things like a day at the track or come out to our next product launch. And yes, I'm I have- I'm not sure what that says about the way you drive your car, <laughs> well, <laughs> that they're inviting you to the track. Oh, I know. But and regardless, uh, being a geek of German cars, I'm all in. Because if I can get on the track and drive with a professional instructor and learn how to get extract more value from the car that I've, I've bought, I'm going to do it. And I have done it. And it's a ton of fun. And so here I am. I bought the car. That's product A, and I've spent money. I then spent time and money at the track with them. That's the tangential element that they've added into it. So it's it's wrapping the product with every, a quality product with all these tangential services. And I know it's a silly example, but it's how you how I look at this particular industry can be and is very relevant to the enterprise software industry. I find that fascinating because when I think about the problem being uh, an HTV guy, high transaction volume. I don't think about the German well-made automobile with mm-hmm. all the tangential services that you could buy. I think about small uh, point solutions in technology and the need for those buyers to have the resources to self-serve because mm-hmm. maybe they don't want the extra white glove help. They're not paying for it. But if I'm using uh, you know, a SaaS platform, even open source technologies, how yeah. easy is it to find the information I need? And, and really, can I achieve the same user experience that an enterprise class customer would get for a high price tag through some sort of tech enablement, be it how-to videos on YouTube, be it free webinars, whatever those things are. I think the key here is we're saying at all ends of the market, the real key is making those customers successful. Exactly. And I think doing it with simplicity and making it easy for the customer. Look, we live in a world now where attention spans are very short. I know that for a fact because I've got two teenage daughters and their attention span for me is incredibly short. But as an average consumer or an enterprise consumer who has spent, whether it's a few thousand dollars on a piece of software or a few million dollars on a piece of software, they want to make sure that it's easy to use. They don't have the time or the desire to make it clunky and cumbersome. So your point is a good one. How do they have a low-touch experience or a low-touch engagement model with a high-touch white glove feel to it? You know, I think it's interesting. When I've thought about customer success teams prior to this conversation, I've always thought about it in terms of this being the team that is responsible for making sure that we're successful with our customers. But that's not at all what it means. I think it sounds to me that what you're describing is a team that's responsible for the customer's success Mm -hmm. using your products. Correct. Which is a way I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah, You know, it's funny. The, The term customer success team, I kind of chuckle when I hear that because Let's just go back 15 years, even 20 years, um, or go back to our, our parents and grandparents there. There was no team dedicated to customer success. It was the company's responsibility. And now we have teams dedicated to customer success. And I understand why that's important. But any organization should be thinking of how do I build a product? How do I create a service? How do I do that with the customer in mind? Now, the team itself helps take the experience to the next level for the customer, But if there isn't an overall mindset within the company of how do we start with the customer in mind and build a quality product, ease of use, ease of engagement, that customer success team probably isn't going to be successful. Quite interesting. When I think about customer success as you describe it, you know, it reminds me that in the early days of my career, you know, it was a joke that, you know, when you pay consultants, 
you, you very rarely see an ROI. Right. You know, in many cases, those projects just tend to stretch on and on and on. And I think that in some ways it was counter to customer success because it was all about, you know, for how long can you continue to, to generate billings? With today's technologies, companies expect an ROI very, very, very quickly. And so I think that shift of looking at these technology investments as an enablement technology mm-hmm. that's trying to get them to some actual business metrics is important. Are you seeing an evolution of, of products out there that that customers and their vendors can use together to measure customer success? This is a great question. And, and there's a lot of technologies that are focused on it right now. I think the preeminent one, if I'm able to name them, is probably Gainsight. Uh, I think Gainsight has done a tremendous job helping enterprises understand how to engage with their customers, how to determine what the right metrics are, and how to have success. You've got other ones like Tatango and Medallia, and, and those are just two of the more prominent ones that are nipping at the heels of Gainsight, and there's probably 20 more in somebody's garage or attic that are being created. So that's the long answer, but the short answer is yes. People are trying to find ways to extract as much value as possible right away. Um, and I think technology is a great place to record and capture that, but I think you need to step back and try and determine what are the processes that you as a company want to put in place. And processes don't have to be a cumbersome word, but what are the elements or the guiding principles that you want to have that are going to make your customers successful? The technology will help you record those, but you've got to figure out what are the unique defendable attributes that you can provide in addition to the product that are going to make the customer successful. And that's where it gets really, really hard. And, you know, in your role uh, running customer success teams for technology companies, I'm curious, when it comes to the enterprise organizations that you're selling to, do, do they have a, a, a peer-level advocate on their side saying, hey, I'm the person responsible for making sure that we're getting an ROI from these tech investments? I, I'm the one you know, who's your peer in the customer organization? Yeah, good, good question. There's usually not somebody with the same title of customer success manager. Uh, we have customer success managers. Every organization I've been with has those functions that we lead in a sales cycle with. What companies uh, have on their end is usually somebody that's just the project manager. And their project manager within the CIO's organization or maybe the CISO, the chief information security officer's organization. That's not a bad thing. But a project manager is usually thinking only about how do I get this implemented? How do I get my people using it? They're not necessarily thinking about how do I extract value. And that's why companies need to be able to have lead with, you know, what are those guiding principles? How are we going to make you successful? So that the customer can quickly understand, okay, let's build this into our workflow. We got the technology installed. Now here's the milestones. Here's the critical success factors we're looking for. Yeah, so I could see how in some companies it might be sort of a partner manager, but I've not really seen a, a vendor manager role, you know, like the, other than maybe a, a CIO from a financial perspective, but I don't really see many companies thinking strategically like no, this. No, you know, and maybe we can create uh, the, the beginning of a new role here. You yeah, know, maybe, maybe Maybe the new role is the client customer success manager, who is the success manager that is engaging with the company providing the technology. And their role is outside of the role of the project manager, just looking from a tech perspective, but they're looking at it from an enablement perspective. I like the idea of evolving, you know, both sides of the coin at the same time, because that would drive development of better tools that are useful to both yeah. organizations. And at the end of the day, what I think is happening is we're trying to find ways to 
to make sure that the products that we're using are offering real ROI. And then afterwards, you know, through, you know, word of mouth, and we tell our friends, those products went out because they're better products. Right. And as a, as a product, you know, officer, someone who's, who innovates around products, and, and that's where my career has been oriented, it's, that's sort of cool, right? To think that we are evolving toward a world where products win by merit, mm-hmm. and it really is about do you see value from that or not? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. The, the value's got to be spelled out very clearly very early on. And, and even the word value is becoming cliche these days, just like transformation and, and other words that are out there. But you know, define what that value is. If you are the company that's selling to an enterprise, both sides have to sit down and define what that value's got to look like. Because think about this, Josh. The people that you are selling to are often t- and that are making the buying decisions aren't always the same people that are doing the implementing. So you're, if you don't have that mutual understanding of what the value is, what the milestones are going to be at the front end. That's why maybe it's important to have two customer success managers coming together. That If you don't have that, you're not going to have a match. So, I, you know, I could talk about sort of what drove my career to make me a, a huge customer advocate. I've always been customer oriented. But, but I'm curious, like, have there <laughs> been specific events in your life that have sort of led you down this, you know, path? Yeah, no, that, there are very two specific events in my life. One uh, and I'll try and be as succinct as possible, but uh, I grew up in the Midwest, and if anybody knows what the Midwest culture is like back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, um, people are very nice, they're very friendly, um, but it's one of those cultures where you don't really complain about things. You just kind of accept this is the way it is, and you go on and say thank you and, and move forward. And, and uh, my father, wonderful man, love him to death. This is going back 30, 40 years. Um, when my father wasn't happy with something, he would let you know about it. And he would let restaurants know about it or the gas station or the department store. And he wasn't mean, but he was very direct. This is not acceptable. This is why it's not acceptable. And he'd have data points. And he'd say, what are you going to do about it to make me happy? And so very early on, sometimes I was embarrassed. Uh, there were a couple moments where I'd listen to my dad go off on a, somebody, and, and I thought, oh, my God, Dad, you're going to get us kicked out of here. But his point was, I'm spending money, and the quality and the level of service you're providing is not good. So that, I mean, probably from age eight or nine years old, that stuck with me. Um, and, I, and for a while, I really enjoyed it when my dad would, would go off on somebody and put them in their place. And then over time, I'm like, God, Dad, don't. Don't be an asshat, you know, um, and, and I kind of backed off that. But his but, point— But you were being—so, but you felt the need to be the advocate for the business. Yes. Sort of against your father, you well, know, in, in a way. Exactly, because there'd be times I'd tug on his sleeve and say, Dad, just—they're trying. Relax. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. We can go get another hamburger or whatever it was. But you also, by being the advocate and making the, the message something they can understand, you got him a better— experience. So it was win-win, right? Right, exactly. And my dad is a wonderful, we're, we're very close friends, and now he's the most empathetic, understanding person there is, and, and you wouldn't know it. But you know, there was a time where you know he would just call out when things weren't satisfactory. And you've got to respect that, but there's a way to do it. Um, so that was one of the inflection points <laughs> in my life. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, it stuck with me. Fascinating. Um, the other one, uh, I was fortunate enough to start a company uh, with two, two other fellows back in 2001, and we ran that for 12 years. 
and had a lot of success with it and sold it to our friends just up the street. Can I mention their names? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, so we built a security software company, uh, Credent Technologies, which I'm eminently proud of. Uh, and Dell acquired us in uh, December of 2012. Yeah, all of our listeners are going to read your LinkedIn profile okay. anyway, so you might <laughs> okay. as well talk about it. Great. One of the best places I've ever been. Fantastic people. Any Credent alum out there, uh, you guys are truly the best and best experience of my life. But I bring that up because when we started the company, we had venture capital, we had a bunch of really good brains, uh, and then we eventually built a product, and we got our first customer. And when you have one customer, you've got to do everything you can to keep that one customer. And again, going back to 2001 when we founded the company, we got our first customer product, GA product out the door and our first customer within 12 months. So pretty, and this is the perpetual software world. So, you know, when we got that first customer, we had to figure out what are we going to do to keep them? And well before the term customer success came into vogue, we were thinking of additional services, engagement models. How do we make it easy for them? How do we, you know, creating health checks and being on site with them? And then customer one became customer two and customer three and we kept that model going. So from our very first customer um, all the way through acquisition, we were providing what we felt, uh, and I still feel, was a very unique um, customer experience. How we took care of them with support, professional services. We had dedicated people handling those accounts, not sales folks, but people within our success team. Uh, and we didn't call it a success team. We just called it customer operations. Um, and so those two periods, especially the latter, uh, really impacted me and, and formulated how I think about taking care of customers. That's pretty interesting. You know, for me as a product innovator, it's always seemed a little bit like an equation that, mm-hmm. that is a little bit impossible to completely solve, but you can almost get there, more like calculus than sure. algebra. And so, you know, trying to figure out exactly how to alter the product so that it, it more adequately meets the needs of the customer as they evolve over time has just always, you know, fascinated me. But also I think part of what's driven me toward customer success is that I grew up in an industry within network engineering where the explosion of the network, uh, available bandwidth and how companies leveraged it from, say, the late 90s through today just grew sort of beyond any of our own wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember when, you know, a 14 modem was really, really fast. Oh, yeah. Right, and maybe you needed to get online once a day and check email. Uh, and, and now we we rely upon you know gigabit speed everywhere we go. We have five G available in many cities across the country, and so suddenly there was this need for a number of network engineers and administrators out there that the market could never hope to train in time. Yeah. And so we were building products at SolarWinds to make it easier and easier for novices to do that job and sort of look like experts. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, we achieved customer success uh, by teaching. You know, we would hold free training for our customers, you know, every day of the week. You know, on weekends, we record them. Those evolved into podcasts and webinars. And I think that sort of, you know, desire to be a teacher uh, for those customers in a market that was growing faster than their educational capacity sort of forced us down this path of saying we have to find a way to help these people be successful 
failure just wasn't an option. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring up the teaching element because if you go back a couple minutes in the podcast, I talked about you know, figuring out what your defendable attributes are that, that make you stand out. That's a great example of if you decided or you realized that being a teacher and an educator for your customers was a, either a differentiator, but it was an, a valuable element to their experience with you. And it obviously has paid dividends because SolarWinds has been wildly successful for a long time. Well, I think those companies that can teach and teach well, you know, they have an inherent advantage because if those customers are successful based upon those learnings, then you gain a loyal customer for many, many years. And one of the early problems that customers, uh, excuse me, that software vendors faced was they would develop uh, loyalty so strong that they wanted to follow that customer as they changed jobs over their career. Yeah. Because I know as customer success teams, you think about things like that. So that's a, that's a hard problem. How have you sort of looked to solve that problem in your career? I like to think in the abstract. I tell my teams this all the time. And sometimes, you know, people on my team give me the crooked-headed dog stare, like, <laughs> think in the abstract. What do you mean? But to solve problems, I want to get as many inputs as possible. Uh, I don't want to muddy the waters, but I want to get as many inputs as possible and then start whittling away. Uh, And the way you whittle it down is you have to understand why are the customers buying from you? What are they trying to do with your product or your service? Companies that understand why a customer is buying from them um, are going to have more success understanding how to provide additional services over time and also selling additional services to them over time. So, again, I don't think I'm answering your question, but I think because this is one where I just haven't figured it out. But for me, it's about understanding how the buyers are – why the buyers are buying from you and what they're trying to do. And to understand that, you, you I don't think it's just a linear equation all the time. No, I, I think you're right. I think it's a nonlinear equation. I think that what I was sort of driving toward was that, for example, you know, LinkedIn has become a super important advertising channel in the last few years. And partly because you can track these individuals that may become fans of your product, yeah. you know, as they change job to job sure. to job, which was really hard to do when all we did was email campaigns. Sure. Um, but I think it's it's interesting because what you're describing is, you know, a more intimate relationship with the customer than most technology companies had ten years ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, even in my personal life, I've I've bought, I have followed people that have moved from one company to another and bought from them because I like the way they treated me. And, you know, that, and I I truly hate to speak in generalities here, but that goes back to, you've got to figure out, you know, what is it that you're going to provide a customer that's going to make them want to continue to come back beyond just the product itself? A lot of it is the behavioral element. And so if, if somebody is with company X and they move to company Y and then they move on to company Z, they're probably going to take customers with them if the experience they provided was good, if they were constantly taken care of, if cases were resolved, if you know renewals were seamless. A lot of that is the company that defines those processes, but it's the individual, it's the concierge-level experience that they get. Um, and that comes down to the individual person, which these customer success teams, like I said earlier, have, they've got to define their processes. They've got to define the elements that are, and, that are going to make them special and unique. And then the people have to carry that through because you can have processes all day long, but if you don't have the right people in get in place to carry those forward, it's not going to be successful. You know, I think it's interesting that what we're watching is an evolution of sort of successful corporate structure, especially mm-hmm. for tech companies, yeah. right? And in the past, we would have 
you know, your CEO, CFO, and probably sales and marketing, you know, right up there at the head of the table with engineering. And that might have been it. Uh, what we're seeing now are the emergence of two new and very important roles in that C-suite, the chief product officer and the chief customer officer. Yep, absolutely. And I think that those two roles tie together pretty nicely because what we're really saying is that, you know, in a product-led growth company, we want to focus on getting product market fit and making sure that that product market fit is what's driving our go-to-market efforts. And then secondly, the most important thing we can do is make sure our customers are successful in using our products. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that the two roles, the chief product officer and chief customer officer, are definitely two of the most important roles. Uh, look, every role is important. And they, weren't, they didn't exist 10 no, years ago. Well, exactly. And, and, and it's interesting, though, because I've had conversations where some people say, that, you know, well, the, just because you're chief customer officer, um, I'm still responsible for, for the customers. And this is the head of sales that might be saying this. Nobody is saying that the chief customer officer is more important than the head of sales. The chief customer officer the responsibility should be developing and creating ways to take care of the existing customers, making sure that retention remains in place and you're reducing churn. They have to partner with the head of sales so that, you know, as new customers come on board, the experience is a good one. But more importantly, chief customer officers got to really partner with the chief product officer because you are on, the chief customer officer is on the front line understanding what customers like and don't like about the product. Yeah, I sort of think of it uh, like three-dimensional charting in that, you know, it's almost like the business is one pivot table. And these senior roles are simply another end or another pivot in that three-dimensional cube of data, right, as another intersection. At at that level, you're all responsible for customer success. You're all responsible for customer success. The board looks at it and says, as an investor, I look at it and say, look, if you're in the C-suite, you're responsible for company success. Correct. The lens I need you to look at it through, right, your laser through that pivot table, that three-dimensional chart of data is maybe from a sales perspective or a customer perspective or a product perspective or a finance perspective, right? But it's that focus. It's, it's, it's saying that, that that lens or that perspective is just as important as the others. And that's why you put it a seat at that table. No, absolutely. And and it's interesting. A lot of companies have added the chief customer officer role once they've realized that their net promoter score or their customer satisfaction score has taken a significant dip. There's usually a wake-up call where they say, holy cow, we've got to focus on this now. That was my next question. So so if I were running a company out there as an investor, a board member, or, you know, a C-level, and we didn't have a customer success organization. What would be signs that maybe it's time we stopped and had a serious conversation about, you know, establishing that function? Great question. I think there's the obvious indicators there. You know, is your customer satisfaction score uh, uh, dipping? Is it going down? And if so, why? You've got to ask yourself why and be able to find have the supporting data. Number two, if you don't have a net promoter score process in place, you've got to put one in place and figure out what that is. How many, how many advocates do you have versus detractors? But the other thing that I think a lot of companies miss is how are customers using your products? If you're not measuring how they're using your products, you're not going to have a good indication of are they going to be a long-term customer. So, so I would say that we've, we've answered sort of signs that maybe things aren't going as well as you think and you should think about a change. Yeah. But let's look at it from the other lens. 
let's assume things are going great. Mm-hmm. The company's going going well. The board's happy. Investors are happy. Um, but you don't have a customer success organization. Let's talk about ways you could still accelerate even a healthy business. Yeah, great, great point. And I think the other way is tap it, use your customer success organization or create one uh, as a mechanism to understand where your customers want to go with your products because they might be really happy today. Great quality product. Everything went perfect with the implementation. They're getting a lot of value. But in 18 months, are they still going to be happy? So use your customer success organization to engage with your customers in the form of product councils, um, bring in this chief product officer, create user groups where you're getting feedback to understand not just the here and now usage, but where they're going. Because the organizations that are aligned to where their customers are going are the ones that are going to be able to build long-term relationships and that long-term contract value that is so important or the lifetime value of a contract, rather, uh, is really going to come into play. So, you know, it, it's this, it, it sounds simple, and I don't mean to oversimplify because it is difficult to do, but use those customer success organizations to understand where customers want to go, not just what they're doing today. So as a tech founder, let's, let's say that my business is only, you know, 10, 15, under $20 million a year in ARR. Mm-hmm. I'm growing. I've got a sales leader. I have a, a product leader, a marketing leader. But you know, starting out, I'm my own customer success officer, right? Because sure. that's my main focus. At what point do you think should people start thinking about handing that off as a CEO? And where is usually the first place that they hand it? Two good questions. Um, and I'll answer the last question first. So you typically where I've seen CEOs create or hand off a customer success function Uh, A lot of times it falls into the sales organization, especially when the company's smaller. They don't have the budget or the money to to hire a C-level person or maybe an SVP level, so they put it within sales, and they maybe put it as part of the account management handling renewals as well. Not a bad place for it, but long-term, probably not the right place for it. Um, And I forgot your first question. Well, sort of when. (laughs) Like, what what would be the sign that maybe it's time to think about you bring on some help for that. Yeah, there's no magic number. Um, you've got to look at your customer count, and you've got to look at the complexity and the size of each customer, the demands that supporting that customer puts on you. And you, every company's probably got a set of metrics. Uh, in my mind, if you're a small company and you start creeping up to 20-some-odd enterprise-level customers, you probably should be thinking about getting somebody or a couple people focused on customer success and def- starting to build out programs for you. Because um, you start to get into this range where if you, you know, if you have 20 customers and you've been successful enough to grow, you're probably going to have 30 and 40 and 50. And then all of a sudden, it might be really difficult to manage. 20 is still manageable where you can have a 1 to 20 or maybe a 2 to 10 ratio. Let's talk about metrics a little bit. So, you know, when you think about customer success, um, if you were going to to devise a customer success scorecard that you were going to use to show your board, you know, your other C-level execs, and and that a company might use to sort of uh, give themselves a a scorecard as to how their their customer success health is, Mm -hmm. what metrics would be on there? Well, let's – assuming we're still talking about a SaaS company, um, uh, you know, uh, MRR, monthly recurring revenue, is obviously important. I think we need to look at churn rate, Um, not just the churn rate, how many customers are churning, but how often is the churn? At what point in their life cycle with you did they churn? Did they churn after a year? Did they churn after three months? Um, Those are some important elements to look in place and look at. Um, I also think the lifetime 
contract value is important. What is What did they spend today and what's the potential for them to spend over time? That's going to dictate what kind of customer success programs you put in place for that customer. Um, and then another metric that I, again, I'll go back to that I think is not often looked at is there's technologies out there that allow you to see how customers are using your product and what features and functionalities they're using. Um, there's a tool called Pendo. Yeah, I use one called Heap. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's it. a lot, lot of them out there. But they allow you to drill down and see how customers are using your product. If you can look and say, wow, we're spending a lot of money on this feature, but only 10% of our customers are using it, that's a pretty good metric to allow you to say, hey, maybe we need to shift how we position this, how we sell it, or how we invest. Uh, on the flip side, you can see where you're not spending a lot of money, but there's high usage. You know, so it's all around allocating your investments. I'm not a fan of complicated scorecards. There's probably half a dozen. I think maybe I just named five of them, mm -hmm. which are important to look at. And I would say start with a scorecard that's palatable, that's manageable, that you can say, yeah, the, A, we've got the capacity to measure these, but B, these make sense for us. Manageable on what frequency? Manageable in terms of being able to react to the indicators that you see on that scorecard. That you would pull weekly, monthly, the, uh, quarterly? Yeah. Uh, definitely monthly. If you're not doing a quarterly business review as a customer and looking at your customers, especially a CS team, if you're not doing it at least every quarter, you're doing something wrong. Um, ideally, you're doing this monthly. There are some metrics you want to look at weekly, like case volume if you're in the support world. But I think on a monthly basis, you get a real good indicator of some of those key uh, metrics I talked about of where the business is heading. You know what I'd like about what you just said, Andrew, was it makes you think a long term. You know, if I'm looking at a, at, a week, at a daily or a weekly, you know, trend line, mm -hmm. it's you sort of – if you can read the data weekly, then you expect you should be able to impact it weekly, right? right? But you're talking about long-term relationships. You're talking about, you know, what can we do to affect a, a renewal a year from now or maybe three years from now, and how do we really set the tone to build that long-term path towards success, which I think is – counter to the way a lot of people think about software. They think about it as a very short-term mm -hmm. transaction, you know, to make the deal happen. Yep. But it's it's less about transactions and more about relationships, it sounds like. No, completely agree. And and with all due respect to, to the sales function, that's a hard, hard job. That's one that I wouldn't be good at, having a quota and carrying a bag. And look, we're all selling ultimately, but the sales job is really hard. But the term transactional, um, I think, is a good one because and that's why I don't think putting customer success within a sales organization always makes sense because the sales organization tends to think transactionally. Customer success is thinking more relationship-oriented, which is, to your point, longer term. Yeah, really fascinating. Yeah. I think that, you know, in some ways, maybe we're seeing sort of some reverberations of the movement from enterprise software to SaaS where where the transactions felt much more, well, transactional, for lack of a better word. You know, in many cases, you go online and buy with a credit card, you never talk to a sales rep. Right. And so there, you really never establish a relationship. And so what I like about this macro trend is that we're seeing sort of transactional purchasing, but but building of a real relationship between, you know, what may be a software vendor, which nowadays, you know, if we're offering SaaS, it is a marriage of services and technology and, and how we funnel that relationship towards something healthier for both sides of the agreement, which is interesting. Yeah, no, it really is. And, and you know, something that I want to point out that I think really supports what you just said, um, 
again, I, you know, the company that I co-founded, you know, one of the reasons we were acquired by Dell, and I distinctly remember we were sitting at dinner uh, the night that the transaction happened, we're having a celebra- celebratory dinner. And clearly product was important because they wanted to have a security element to their suite of offerings. But I remember the head of M&A looked over and said to us, and it was me and our CEO and our chief technology officer uh, and a few other folks. And he looked over and he said, you know, one of the reasons we bought you guys is because of how you take care of your customers. We did a lot of reference calls with your customers and all of them talked about the technology. But more importantly, and what really impressed us is how you guys took care of them. Now, the word customer success never came into that conversation, but it's that comment right there that tells me that if a company's not focused on the long term with a customer, the outcomes may not be what you want. And I think it just supports what you just said. Well, I think if you could go back and do a study of early tech companies that that were transformational brands over time, yeah. what you'll find is that a lot of the early tech companies that didn't evolve and make it to be that successful had great products. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the companies that really changed the world had both great products and a great focus on customer success. One of my favorite calls at SolarWinds I, I ever I got, and I'll never forget this phone call, I was at my desk, and this nice lady called Nancy, and she said, Hi, um, I'm a school librarian, public school librarian, and our math teacher is our network administrator. And the school board decided he needed to teach a higher number of classes while he did the IT stuff, and he decided to quit. And my name is Nancy again. I'm the librarian. Today I've started my job as network en- engineer. And my first question is, what's a router? <laughs> and she had seen that they had bought SolarWinds software from us and so that we were a vendor. And she was just hoping for some free education and sure. some help. And I spent several hours with her that day. And then, you know, over time, that sort of evolved and, and became one of the people that learned from our, from our podcast and our blogs and videos and things like that. But I think that passion around making those customers successful is what, in some ways, sort of lets these technology companies that, that are innovative, but at the same time, it's, it's about marrying those two things together. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, uh, and that's a really funny example, um, but it but it also shows you know the the, the way you decided to interact with that that lady and take care of her. Uh, you, you know, Zappos is a fantastic company. Everybody know. Hopefully, all of your listeners know who Zappos is. But I think they're the ones that really started this. Um, if you think about it, for those of you that don't know, Zappos started out selling shoes online. They now sell some clothing, but still predominantly shoes. And they'll define themselves. Uh, as a service organization, not selling shoes. But think about this. You buy a $100 pair of shoes, maybe even a $50 pair of shoes. It doesn't matter what you spend with them. They still treat you with the utmost respect and give you white glove service. The shipping is easy. The returns are easy. Getting a new product is easy. Talking to them is easy. And so if you think about if it's so easy to do this with a fifty or hundred dollar product, why shouldn't it be easy with a multi thousand or multi million dollar product? And I think Zappos has really turned the enterprise software business on their head and said, "Whoa, we've got some competition here." I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that by making technology easier to consume, yep. right, you don't have to buy from from a company you've never heard of before, and by making it lower priced and always available, we we've really sort of freed the user of the software to have a voice in the purchasing decision. And we can talk about that for just a moment, right? Because part of what that trend that we're talking about is moving the approval of software and technology purchases farther and farther down 
the organizational stack closer to the one who's actually using the software day by day. Yeah. And so that person's ability to dramatically impact what software they're going to choose is much more significant than it was 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's because 20 years ago, you were dealing with the person that was responsible for millions of dollars of budgets, and they had a purchase level authority where they could, you know, if it was $50,000 or a million dollars, they had to sign off, but they're not the ones using it. It's the administrator that, again, using the SaaS model on a monthly recurring basis, that's probably within their realm to approve, but they've got to be comfortable with the technology. And so when you've got a disconnect between approvers and buyers and users, um, the, the, uh, the, the outcome of being successful is a lot lower. So I, you're, you're spot on. Hmm. That's really fascinating to think yeah. about that change. Yeah. No, I think, I think companies that don't think about that, again, they don't think about not only who's using the product, but how are they consuming it. Um, companies that don't start with that in mind are going to, not that they can't be successful, but I think it's just going to be more challenging for them over time. Well, I think as an industry, we've benefited from both the innovative practices in B2C businesses, but also B2B. Uh, You know, as you mentioned earlier, Zappos probably drove a lot of what now allows Amazon to be successful with their no-hassle return policies. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's super, super interesting. Yeah. No, look, I love studying this stuff. I'm constantly looking at the experience I have when, whether it's going to the gas station or going to a a coffee shop or a restaurant, it's what's the experience and is the product I'm getting a good quality, but what's, what's the ambiance like? Was I seated quickly? You know, all the little things that go into creating and essentially buying my loyalty, I'm constantly measuring that. And so if you can take that everyday experience and put it into your business model, I think your customers are going to have a a better experience with you as well if you're thinking about the entire experience, not just the core product. Well, Andrew, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming down to Austin and chatting with me. No, you're welcome, Josh. This was a lot of fun and I'm happy to help. Enjoyed it. Thanks. That's it, everyone, and thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.